Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Oh, this one's going to be great. This is all about girl power today, which we love doing. We've got with us today Becky Laxton Bass, who is the founder of Women of London. So she is a historian and tour guide. And what she does is walk people around our city, telling them about the history of it through the achievements of women. Becky, hi. Hi. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm good, thank you. You're starting to get tours again, aren't you? This is good. Yeah. I I did my first tour at the end of uh, July and then this month we've had uh, four tours booked. So it's really exciting to be back out there talking about these women. So just out of the house full stop yeah that too (laughs) (laughs) well what you're gonna do to us today and this is brilliant you're gonna talk us through London through the eyes of some women who maybe you don't get to focus on hugely in your um tours because obviously broad strokes and everything for tourists so we're going to talk about some of your favorites and give them some attention aren't we absolutely um I wanted to uh include a few stories that yeah I have read about but haven't found a way to incorporate them into any of our tours yet um especially with kind of London being so big and we're hoping to kind of have more tours running eventually so these are women that may appear later uh in tours but for now I haven't found a way to uh kind of speak about them Uh, but they all have important relevance to London some of them have plaques that you can visit Um, some have graves that still exist so you know there is a way to uh, definitely find out more about these women if anyone is interested after so brilliant and just a caveat right so if anybody starts going oh Becky didn't mention this person or this person or this person (laughs) it's because I said to her when she was making her list we've got quite a lot of 20th century stuff so she's concentrated on earlier ones haven't you Yes, absolutely. Um, And actually, it's quite good because, again, a lot of the uh, probably 20th century women we do discuss, uh, you know, Edith Cavall, uh, Agatha Christie, are probably a little bit more well known. Mm. Um, So the the women I've chosen, I've tried to kind of look at a kind of broad range of themes, uh, but also pre 20th century and actually a little bit earlier. Some some of the women are 17th, 18th century as well. So brilliant. Okay, who's first? Um, So my first choice was Afra Ben. Uh, the English playwright, um, Mm -hmm. who we think was born around 1640. Um, A lot of the women that I've kind of been looking at, um, I find the earlier they are, the less information there is about their early lives. And it's only when they come into kind of the public eye that we really get a kind of set, okay, they're here, they're there, you know, this is what they're doing. So her early life is kind of, and actually her life in general has a lot of mystery around it. There's a lot of kind of urban legends, which I love um, telling tourists about, you know, (laughs) 
we think this may have happened. Um, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, they say. Um, I saw a but, tour guide once telling everyone about when Hitler was a prisoner in the Tower of London. So, Oh my God, what? I, yeah, <laughs> just for shits and giggles, well, I know you don't do that. No, I don't. I don't. I always, um, I always start. Legend has it, so yeah. um, that's my that's my little clause. Um, but yeah, she was an English play, playwright, uh, a poet, uh, translator, and she wrote fiction as well. So she was very prolific in her day, and actually was one of the first English women to be able to kind of survive purely off writing. Um, so the money she made from her published works, um, she was able to live off. And um, she also has, a, like I said, a lot of fiction around her life. There's a, a tale about her becoming a spy in the court of King Charles II, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of supported by the fact that she wrote these letters of her time as a spy. But there's a lot of debate around whether these letters were fiction or not. Um, and whether she just invented them to try and increase her popularity as a writer. Um, And this is actually really covered extremely well in a book called Invisible Agents by Nadine Ackerman. And she writes about women in espionage in the 17th century. And she kind of contests whether or not Afra just made all the spy stuff up or whether it actually happened. Um, but we know that by the 1666 period, she is active in the court of Charles II. And she was a huge supporter of the Stuarts, especially being raised during this kind of political turmoil, you know, post-Civil War. Yeah. In London, you can imagine as a woman, there was a lot of restrictions already. And then you have that period where, you know, women as writers, actresses kind of are allowed to happen finally with the restoration. Yeah. Um, and what uh, you mean she... when Cromwell goes away from the scene, yeah. people can have fun again. Yeah, yeah. We were allowed <laughs> to drink and, you know, do all those things and that have we, Christmas. we Londoners. Yeah. <laughs> Londoners love doing um and yeah she I mean her support for the Stuarts was really shown a few times she actually refused to write uh, a kind of poem welcoming William III when he was coronated with Mary uh the second because she was she just didn't like him he wasn't a Stuart um and she also wrote some really um kind of controversial stuff about James II as a Catholic king so, you know, her support really was with uh, Charles. And through this, she managed to meet quite a lot of the actresses at the time as well. Because, you know, I'm sure we all know they were hanging around Charles quite a lot. Um, <laughs> Mostly naked, hanging around yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. So, she often uh, wrote plays specifically for women that she would know, um, including Nell Gwynn, who mm. um, actually came out of retirement to uh, perform in her very famous uh, play The Rover which is like a comic play it was her first comic uh, piece and actually went down extremely well so they did collaborate um, and actually I think last year I didn't get around to seeing it but there was um, a play put together of like their relationship and it was called Oranges and Ink looking at the friendship between Afra and Nell Gwynn Oh, good. Um, so, yeah, hopefully it comes back because I missed yeah. it. And I'm hopefully like, theatre's come back full stop. Yeah, that, that too. Um, so yeah, so her life, it has all this mystery around it. But what we do know is uh, from her writing and the things she wrote about. Um, and one of the kind of most famous novels that she ended up publishing uh, was actually, again, uh, legend has it, she went travelling to a small English colony. Uh, and during the trip, she met an African slave leader who inspired the basis of this book. Um, And I apologise about my pronunciation, but it's called Oronico, which basically translates as the royal slave, from what I can gather. Uh, And it was published in 1688. It's about an African prince who is actually tricked into slavery uh, and sold to a British colonist. And it's his kind of account of his life 
his love, rebellion, uh, and spoiler alert, his execution as well. Um, and it became extremely popular. It was adapted after her death into theatre, which ran regularly in Britain, but also went to America in the 18th century. And again, for a female writer writing in the 17th century to have her work adapted on stage in America at the time would have been absolutely huge um, and a massive achievement. Um, There is question marks of whether he, Aronico, actually existed or whether, again, this is kind of a fictionalised account that Afra kind of created. But it became really important during the 18th century with the abolition of slavery. Um, And it is actually counted as the first anti-slavery novel as well. Mm. And it's written by a woman. So, you know, that in itself is a Damn. huge achievement. Uh, yeah, mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I said, she turned to uh, plays and the rover, which I mentioned uh, earlier, was actually a multiple plot line story. So it always makes me think of like Love Actually and all those movies where there's like intertwining stories. Yeah. Um, Afra, who wrote this play in the se- uh, 1670s, was arguably the first person to come up with this like idea of these intertwining um, multiple plot lines um, and it's set kind of at the time it's in Naples it's a carnival time and it's a group of men and women and it has some really interesting themes and this is why I chose Afra more than kind of other female writers at the time that I could have looked at um, because her characters especially her female characters um, you know, they would talk actively and openly about things like rape, uh, unwanted marriage, you know, forced marriage, um, the kind of idea of when almost like when no is said, it means no, um, you know, don't try and woo us. We're not interested. Leave us alone. Yeah. Um, and these later were actually taken out of uh, adaptions of the play. So in 1790, the character Helena who gives this speech on rape uh, in this play um, the entire speech is taken out of the the 1790 version Um, so again this kind of editing of women's uh, work that's not what men want to (laughs) hear yes no we definitely don't Um, it gets even more controversial because she wrote a poem which um, (laughs) I'll just throw it out there it's called The Disappointment Um, (laughs) yeah And it is a comic account on uh, male impotence and the woman's perspective of such a thing. Um, and again, writing in the 17th century about such liberal kind of, you know, themes, especially for women and sex, it was absolutely kind of outrageous, but they loved it. And this is during the time of Charles. So he was a huge fan of Afra's work, as you can imagine, yeah. in a really kind of creepy way. Um, but in the 1970s, her work kind of got a bit more attention. Uh, she was also referencing Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Um, Virginia writes about uh, how actually all women should lay flowers upon the tomb of Afra Ben, uh, which actually is in Westminster Abbey. Um, and I love this idea of this really scandalous writer um, being buried in Westminster Abbey, <laughs> um, which I love. Uh, but uh, the idea is that Virginia Woolf basically said it is Afra who earned women the right to speak their minds. Um, so, you know, this difference of so many years and, and centuries, this link between these women, I think, is absolutely amazing. Um, and her tomb in Westminster Abbey lies not in Poet's Corner, unfortunately, which, you know, again, probably because she was a woman at the time, I would argue. But she's um, just kind of down one of the, the steps on the floor. Um, I remember when I went there, I kind of just walked over it and was like, wait, this is Afro Ben. Like, it's crazy. Um, but it, it says on her tomb, here lies proof that wit can never be defence enough against mortality. So, 
I think she's my new hero. She's great. (laughs) (laughs) No, I absolutely absolutely love her. Yeah. Like um, female Shakespeare, but better. Yeah, kind of. She, uh, she, all of her work is like available on online, and a lot of it was republished during second wave feminism as well. Um, and I think she kind of, because of Victorian era and Victorian writers, um, you know, she was she she handled criticisms the same way the Victorian writers of the time would have as well. You know, women being criticised for the types of themes they're writing about and how those would reflect on on her life. Um, but also she argued that because she was a woman, she had to hold a higher standard than men because men could just live any kind of life uh, and write anything they liked and get away with it. Whereas as a woman, she had to kind of, not that she did, she was quite liberal, but she believed that she had this, there was this double standard around her. Um, and you see it all through women writing. Um, so for her to handle those controversies earlier on, I think she is just a completely amazing woman. So yeah, could not talk about is. her. <laughs> I, just, I don't know how you're going to top that, to be honest. Who's next? Um, so I started with her. I thought I'd hit the bar high and yeah. then hopefully keep it up there. But um, my next one, because that's uh, Afro Ben, I find is more uh, concentrated around Westminster area. So I wanted to kind of turn it on the other side and look at someone who's quite active in the East End. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I chose the uh, English textile designer Anne Maria Garthway. Okay. Um, and Anne Maria Garthway was probably one of the the only women who, without a husband or without a kind of father linked in the textile guild, was able again to make her own money off something that was predominantly male kind of dominated at the time. Um, she was born in 1688 and she actually wasn't born in London. She was born in York. Um, she got quite lucky that, lucky, that's not the right word. Um, her parents died and left her money was what I was going to say. Oh, okay, right. um, so that's better in, than them dying and leaving her no money. Exactly. That, yeah. was, that was what I meant. Um, but she was able to buy a house in Princelet Street, just off kind of Spitalfields Market, which in the 1728, when she moved there, was, you know, the real heart of this textile industry with the Huguenots and the fashion design and the silk weaving. It really was quite a kind of fashionable area. Um, her house, which today has a blue plaque on it, and um, the blue plaque was put there in 1998. Um, it actually has two entrances. Um, one was like the business entrance. So the idea that, you know, you the shop front almost. And then the other side entrance is like goes up to the private accommodation on the side. Mm. Um, and she would actually keep an all female household. So she would only employ women to work, uh, which, again, at the time in the 1700s, women's work obviously is limited. And so for this woman to choose to employ women over men, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but her her passion for designing was evident when she was a a young girl there's um, a drawing of her like studying gardens watching gardeners work flowers trees and she incorporated her kind of botanical interest into what she would design so she would draw out these like beautiful plants with lots of different colors and she would work with her imagination a lot she would take bits from each plant that she liked and kind of create her own hybrid design effectively Mm. and she would have people come and look at these designs and be like yeah I will pay you know whatever it was at the time uh, and I want that made into some fabric which will then get converted into a waistcoat or a dress for example Um, and there are two types of ways she would do this she would either have 
kind of ones she would design and then use again and again. But she also worked for quite high end clients who would purchase the rights to the design. So Anna would not be able to reuse that design on anything uh, okay. else. With the idea that you don't want someone else having the same outfit as you, yeah. which <laughs> you don't want to walk into a ball or something and find. I something. hate it when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and probably one of the most famous of these was designed for the Lord Mayor's daughter at the time, Anne. Um, the dress today is actually on display in the Museum of London. So if anyone wants to go there and they walk into a room and there is a dress that would not fit through double doors, it is the widest thing you will ever see. Um, <laughs> it is beautiful, though. It's got like silver thread um, sewn into it. So in candlelight, it would have like glistened. Yeah. Um, and actually, my favorite thing about this dress is that it the pattern of it is actually hops and barley because um, the Lord Mayor, whose daughter was wearing this dress, he made all his money off brewing beer. So this idea that his daughter kind of walked around showing off <laughs> where their money to came beer. Yeah. I hear all the men that are listening to this, their ears have just pricked up. It'll be the only yeah. time they can run into a museum to see a dress. And no Holmes yeah. is doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was one of the more famous ones. But actually, what's really sad about uh, Anna Maria Garthway is we have no image of her. There's no painting. We have no letters that she wrote. So there's very little known about kind of her life. We know her because of what survived from her work. And there is an incredible amount of her original designs that are on display today in the Victorian Albert Museum. There's over 800 of them that still exist that you can see. Um, and there's actually two handwriting on, on most of them, two sets of handwriting, uh, one which is believed to be Anne-Maria um, and the other is her sister, who was the kind of business mind of the, the combo. Um, her sister was widowed twice and ended up living uh, with Anna in Princeton Street. Um, and you can see Anna's writing is very scribbled. And then her sister's obviously gone back over everything and just kind of tidied it up and um, also said how much the fabrics were sold for or the designs, um, who who paid for them, what the date was as well. So, you know, it gives us a lot more information about the situation. Um, but my favourite thing about Anna is that after she died, she uh, left all of her money to the women that she uh, kind of employed. Yeah. But she left it on a clause that no male relatives or future husbands could have access to that money. That's brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> she really didn't so, like men, did she? I love it. Yeah, she never got married. There's no evidence of her kind of being interested, you know, in men at the time. No, who knows? Like she I doesn't said, doesn't need so... one, does she? No, no. Which is great in that period <laughs> to be just like, what do I need a bloke for? Yeah, absolutely. And I really love this idea of her kind of her legacy living on with those women who are able to then hopefully, you know, kind of be independent, have their own access to money, which at the time would have been a huge uh, thing. Um, and she's actually buried in Christchurch, the huge church off just off Spitalfields Market. Mm. Um, so she's in one of the communal graves there, it's believed. Um, so yeah, that is um, Anne Maria Garthway, the second woman. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I really like her. Who's next? <laughs> Um, so my next one was uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Hessel, um, who I kind of, again, I came across her story and I'm still kind of investigating a little bit more about her. I need to get to some archives when, you know, eventually mm, you can. What's one of those? um yeah no getting an appointment to one is really difficult um but she actually was born in uh stepney in 1713 um and her father as far as we can tell was a soldier there is a little bit of a theory that she kind of went with him to training because her mother was really ill and so couldn't look after her and so she would spend her days kind of surrounded by soldiers um, and this may have influenced her decision to uh, eventually, when she grew up, uh, try and join the British Army. So we're talking 1700s, obviously women not being allowed in the army. So she disguised herself as a man and actually served in the 5th Regiment of Foot um, for about 17 years from what the, the kind of records gather. So she went pretty much undiscovered for 17 years, uh, serving for the Royal Northumberland Fusiliers. And again, there's two kind of theories as to why she did this. Theory number one is she fell in love with a man and wanted to follow him on his kind of journey in the military. So she signed up as well. Um, the second, who she, the man in question, she actually later does marry. So there is a little bit of maybe truth to that romantic tale. But the second uh, version is that um, when her father died, her mother couldn't work and so they had no support uh, no way to support themselves and so phoebe decided to join the military to get money um and so be able to send it home to her mother uh, and care for her that way so i think there may be a bit of truth in both of those mm-hmm. i think maybe she was inspired to kind of earn some some money but also you know fell in love with the man while she was there um she was actually wounded at the battle of uh, fontenoy in 1745 um she received a bayonet wound to her arm um and it is at this point that it seems that she was kind of discovered to be uh, a woman um and like i said the the her serving uh, kind of time is about 17 years so you know she she did a pretty good job until she got injured um she wasn't punished she was kind of dismissed from the military but she got her full pay um and actually later from what i can tell she was entitled to her kind of pension which was awarded to her after some debate um she was given an allowance by the prince regent in the 1880 uh, 1808 sorry um she at this point um decided she she moved to plymouth with her husband she actually had nine children uh eight of whom died in infancy um and the only survivor died later at sea so it's actually a very sad story in that respect um her first husband died she married again uh but by the time she was about 75 she ended up having to support herself before she kind of got this pension which she finally fought a battle to win and Mm -hmm. she would 
sell small items in Brighton. So she was really famous in Brighton for kind of walking down the street, a 75, 80 year old woman, you know, kind of talking about the good old days in the military. Um, And people honestly at the time thought that she was just making up this story to earn money. But, um, you know, as far as we can tell, she actually did serve serve in the military. Um, She lived to 108. No way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's I love the idea of this 108 year old woman walking around Brighton going, when I was in the army and everyone going, she's a lewd and she's not. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about the time as well, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have like been alive during those battles that she would have fought in as well. So she actually went from uh, the way I always love kind of telling people it's um, her first monarch was Queen Anne and her last monarch was George the Fourth. Wow. Do you know what I love yeah. most about it, though? I love that she fought for that pension, then just spitefully lived as long as possible to maximise it. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. That will 13 them. years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 13 years after she was awarded her pension, she died. And they're like, damn yeah. it, we I awarded know. it to her because we didn't this think she'd be around this woman just won't <laughs> die. <laughs> um, her grave, which actually is one of the kind of highlights if um, people want to go and see it. It's in Brighton, obviously. Um uh, but there are actually uh, two streets in Stepney named after her as well. Um, she was quite often known in the kind of legendary idea of uh, the Step- Stepney Amazon um, and Hessel Street. So there's Amazon Street and Hessel Street, which are both named in her honour. Um, so in, in Tower Hamlet, so you can go and see them. But her grave um, basically sums up her story. So even if people um, don't know of her, if they stumble across her grave, it speaks about her time fighting in um, the, the military. It talks about her being wounded. Um, it talks about her, you know, living to 108 um, and that she's buried there as well. And actually the um, Northumberland Fusiliers in the 1970s, they actually paid money to restore her grave. So it's in a much better state now as well. Um, So for anyone that kind of says, oh, she didn't really serve in the military, I always argue that, you know, the military paying to restore this woman's grave wouldn't have done that for no reason, I don't think. So, yeah, that is Phoebe Hessel. I really like her as well. I like them all. (laughs) I think so far, Afrobentop, then Phoebe, then no offence, Anna, but yeah, she just won. She's not 108 and walking around and telling everyone about the time (laughs) in the army and two, she's not Afrobent. But who's next? Um, so next was uh, Frances Burnley or Fanny Burnley, who is another writer, but I didn't pick her necessarily for her uh, her writing in that sense. Um, she was born in 1752, uh, lived to 1840, um, and she wrote novels, plays, biography, journals, letters. She was really prolific. Um, she actually inspired some of Jane Austen's work as well. There's a little bit of overlap between the kind of English Uh, kind of aristocrat kind of themes and love Um, and one of the characters in uh, Fanny Burnley's book is actually featured in Pride and Prejudice as well so there's this kind of wonderful link between these two writers who as far as I can tell you know never met Um, but Fanny also received uh, she published anonymously initially um, and her father um, figured out it was her by reading the work Um, and at that point was like okay if you want to be a writer that's fine but these are the things you're not allowed to write about Um, so her work was very much kind of taboo however after her father died um, it was at this point she began writing a little bit more kind of scandalous novels and probably one of the reasons I chose her was because I think when I read the account that I'm going to mention it it just always sticks with me Mm. Um, because in 1810 Fanny Burnley was diagnosed or or developed pains in her breast um, and she was 
thought to have breast cancer. Um, she was treated by several physicians who deemed that the only way to kind of stop the cancer would be for her to have, uh, I'm going to try and say this right, a uh, mas- mastectomy. Yeah. Um, so to have her, her breast removed. Um, this is in 1811. So this is pre-anesthetic. I just want to kind of throw that out there. And this is a woman who was conscious during the entire operation from what she gathers um she later wrote a 12 page account of the pain and the feeling that she went through during this operation um and the fact that it was performed by seven men as well um for her was something that that kind of really stuck with her you know she was lying there on the table and she was surrounded by one nurse and seven men who were kind of all prodding her poking her and then she consciously and this was the bit that that really got me she she remembers the kind of pain of the blade going in and and removing it and like I said she was conscious for this entire operation which from what I can gather from her 12 page account was not a quick operation either um she writes about trying to close her eyes she writes about screaming she writes about the the sorry for those listening but the blade kind of hitting the breastbone and yeah. kind of the feeling of that and I just I think I was about 12 years old when I read this account yeah. <laughs> and it's always stuck with me as this really powerful thing because this is this is something that even today you know is is kind of taboo in terms of women talking about um and the fact that over 200 years ago a woman has published a very graphic account of what that kind of operation is like and and not just that kind of the effect it had on her mentally the effect it had on her physically I think is something that's extremely important and one of the reasons I wanted to kind of mention her um as far as we know I mean we can't tell if she actually had breast cancer what we do know is she went on to live another 29 years after the operation um so if there was cancer in the breast i I'm, you know, I assume it would have been successfully removed at that point. Um, she is renowned today as uh, a writer and there's some really beautiful portraits of her in the portrait gallery. She also has a plaque in Mayfair, um, which was kind of done by the Royal Society of Arts. She spent a lot of time in France and Bath as well. Um, and like I said, her work it probably doesn't get as much traction as other writers of the time. Um, her diaries, however, give us a lot of information about what life was like for women. Um, and unfortunately, unlike kind of letters which were destroyed and diaries which were destroyed from other women's perspective, you know, Jane Austen, for example, yeah. um, her stuff survived. And so we have a lot of information about her period of life, as well as this 12 page account of this this operation that she underwent. So, yeah, I couldn't not speak about her just because I think it's one of the earliest memories of a woman that I have in history. Yeah. Um, so she always kind of holds a, a place. So, yeah. God, I just feel awful for her. I'm just glad you've yeah. got 29 more years after going through that. Yeah, it's um, like I said, I won't read out the 12 page account, um, yeah. but uh, it is completely available for people to to have a little look more into. And I think it's like I said, it's really important because she addresses the kind of mental um, effect that had um, later on in her life as well, which, um, as I said, I think is something that even today could be argued is something we need to improve upon and needs to be less taboo because it's ridiculous that it's taboo in the first place. Yeah, because it's not like so, it's something you go looking for, is it? Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, she didn't quite live to 108, but, you know, she um, was it 80, 88 she lived to, so... <laughs> yeah, good for her. 
Um, you've got one more for us. Yes. Yeah. My final one, I, I, I love theatre and I really wanted to do someone who performed on stage, but I wanted to do someone who who kind of changed the way the stage was viewed for women. And okay. this lady called Sarah Siddons. Um, and Sarah was born in the late, in the mid 1700s. Um, and again, lived, all these women I've just noticed seem to have lived quite a long life. Um, the That's 18 uh, kind of thirties period. But when she was growing up, um, theater was, it had kind of taken a bit of a dip in terms of respectability for women. Um, I think post Charles, it definitely had a kind of, you know, con- more controversial about the types of women who would perform on stage. Um, but Sarah decided that she would pick her roles to reflect how she wanted the public to view her. And she kind of became a, a cultural icon in that sense, like one of the earliest kind of celebrities. Um, her first uh, success she performed in 1774 in London, and she came to the attention of David Garrick, who um, sent his deputy to see her perform in Jury Lane. Um, However, her initial plays were not well well received. She was thought to be kind of no experience. She had no emotional depth. There's some really awful things written about her initial work. Um, She was actually given a slip of paper, which basically fired her instead of being approached and spoken to. Um, And the piece of paper basically said, your services will no longer be required at the Drury Lane Theatre. Um, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> it's <like> painful. Burn. <laughs> she ended up um, going on the circuit. So this was a, a popular way for women to gain experience. They would work for very little money, but they would get to try different roles. And so she did this for four or five years and then kind of returned to London. This, I imagine this is a very kind of makeover scene. She walks in and she's like very kind of wows everyone with her experience. And uh, in 1782, she went back to Jury Lane and she performed um, and she performed as the title role in Fatal Marriage, um, Isabella, which is a very iconic kind of tragedy role. Um, and apparently the audience was flooding with tears um, at, at how she managed to portray this. She also was extremely famous for her portrayals of Lady Macbeth, mm. which again is a really iconic role for women. However, she she somehow managed to get sympathy for Lady Macbeth by presenting her as a kind of maternal figure um rather than this mad woman which is the more common way that she was uh kind of presented um and she also did this by performing when pregnant oh well so she yeah she went on to have seven children um uh, during her theater career which again is very unusual a lot of women who were to get married their husbands would almost insist they would stop acting at the time because of the scandals around kind of the stage and and the kind of way women were perceived but she continued acting Sarah she was pregnant while performing as Lady Macbeth which gains her kind of sympathy for her character and so she's very well known for this but one of the things she did which is today seems kind of outrageous that this is you know a new invention but at the time she would watch all of the other actors watch the entire play again and again and again study the entire script and then kind of bounce off the other characters on the stage who she was sharing the scene with and this is something that just wasn't done at the time a lot of women and men would learn their lines they would perform their scene but they wouldn't necessarily interact with the emotions of the other characters she's proper method isn't she yeah yeah i really like her i like organized people so she's like (laughs) i can see where she's going with this i love it um so she became extremely famous for being able to kind of steal the stage even when 
when she was in smaller roles. Um, and she actually played the title role of Hamlet, which is a male role. So as a woman, she actually took that kind of, you know, idea of women or men dressing up as female characters and flipped it. And actually on numerous occasions was kind of performing in these male roles and pulled it off beautifully as well um she became known as the undisputed queen of drury lane so which i love lofty title (laughs) (laughs) at what point did the drury lane theater person that fired her get like fired themselves honestly i've not been able to find out who uh that letter came from but Mm. um yeah, I mean, it, you could argue it did have some good. It made her kind of go, right, no, I'm not having this. I'm going to prove that, that this is this is it. Um, one of the other things that really leads to her success, which I think is, is quite an interesting one, is a lot of people believe she continued acting when she came off stage. So she had created her character of the celebrity, the cultural icon. And so she would play that with her fans and in public which really kind of supported this perfect idea. She's great on stage. She's great off stage. She is like the perfect theatre cultural icon. And it, and it did a lot for women in theatre because you've got this extremely respectable woman, this extremely successful woman, you know, who performs while pregnant, you know, all of these things, who gets paid, you know, more, as far as I can tell, a lot more than a lot of the other women at the time. She argues for her pay quite a lot. Um, and she actually turned down, turns down roles when um, other women in the, the theatre aren't getting paid the same as her, um, which I just, again, love for many reasons. Mm. Um, but it's during her last performance as Lady Macbeth that I think she earns kind of her spot in history because she performed uh, 57 times in that season in 1812. Um, And during her last performance, when the audience knew that she was going to retire, um, they refused to allow Macbeth to continue um, after the last scene that Lady Macbeth appears in, which is the sleepwalking scene. Um, So that's her last uh, uh, appearance on stage. She does this amazing appearance and then the audience just clap and clap and clap. And they're trying to get, you know, everyone's trying to shush them so the play can go on. And they're like, no, 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 that's over. It's done now. We don't care about the ending this is Sarah like and so she came back on stage and like gave a farewell speech to her audience which according to some sources may have lasted half an hour um <laughs> which I, I like imagine. to think it did she's not shy is she no exactly um and and so yeah so she went into retirement but actually came out of retirement here and there when royals wanted to see her perform um so in you know in the 1813 1814 only a couple years after retirement she was asked by you know members of the royal family if she'd come and perform for them and she was like yeah why not you know um so she's actually buried in saint mary's cemetery in paddington for anyone that is around that area um the cemetery was actually converted uh, in the late 1800s into a park but her grave was one of the only ones that was preserved in the park and today there's like this horrible like railing over it for anyone that's looking for it um it kind of looks like a prison cell which I don't like but it's there <laughs> for anyone who's interested to see um so yeah that is Sarah Siddons so. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us about five women who I hadn't even heard of some of them, but um, even the ones I'd heard of, I didn't really know why I'd heard of them. It's been brilliant. Um, Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, selling our city and uh, some of the women that help make it.
culturally yeah well, I, like I said I really wanted to um kind of especially with theatre being so important and the debate at the moment but also like tell the stories of women that I don't necessarily get to talk about so uh, it's been really good fun for me kind of getting to share the stories and I know no one can see but my cheeks hurt from smiling after talking about <laughs> women. So that's brilliant cool. if people yeah. want to come and walk London with you where do they find you yeah, so um, Women of London is the Twitter, Instagram, and the website link is on there. It's just womenoflondon.org.uk. Um, .com was taken, apparently, so um, <laughs> had Damn to go it. with the .org. I know. Um, but, yeah, you can find us on social media, um, you know, Google and things like that, and we run lots of different tours through the year. So, uh, yeah, hopefully some people want to learn more about some of these women. So Brilliant. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Join us on Monday when Katrine Clay will be with us talking about all about her brand new book, The Good Germans, which talks about resistance to the Nazis in Germany. The book covers all the way pre-war through to World War II. We're going to focus on before the war. Some really interesting stories in there, so don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.